0: Well, today we're going to be looking at the, the first of God's commandments, the, the first in the law. And actually, I actually want to invite you, would you all stand with me as a way to honor God and to honor His Word together? I'm going to read for you from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Listen now as we, we read the Word of God. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. Now we'll stop there and we can sit back down. And as you sit back down, I, uh, I'm excited to finally be into the actual commandments. We've been kind of preparing for this for a while, but, but today we're actually jumping in. And, and as we do, I want to uh, start with the first commandment with, with kind of talking about a, maybe a rule that you're familiar with. You know, years ago when I was in high school, there was a movie came out, and the movie that came out, I didn't see it for years after, but it had one line in this movie that, that became so ingrained in kind of pop culture, so much so that yesterday I tested my wife, because this is a movie, not the kind of movie my wife would watch, the kind of movie she would avoid. But I, I messaged her on Marco Polo, I said, Jessica, I want you to, I want you to finish this sentence for me, right? See if you can do this, right? And so she, she got to the spot where she was able to, and then I said, okay, here, here's a sentence. Maybe you can finish it. I said, Jessica, the first rule of Fight Club is, right? And she messaged me back without ever seeing this movie, the, the correct answer. The first rule of Fight Club is you, you don't talk about Fight Club, right? Now, you might be sitting there saying, I, I don't know what you're talking about at all. And that, and that's okay. That's okay. It probably is better that you don't. But, but here's the deal. But sometimes... Lines like that and, and laws like that and rules like that, they, they get ingrained to us, it, ingrained in us in such a way. I mean, you think about this rule, I actually, I don't even know if there were other rules when it came to that movie. I don't know if there are other rules when it came to Fight Club, but the one thing I know is this, this first rule, it governs everything about those who have this, this exclusive invitation. It, it governs everything about their lives. I share that with you because that's exactly what we're going to see as we look at the very first of the commandments. All of these other commandments we're going to look at over the next nine weeks, they are of, of vital importance for us as we seek to learn, how does God want us to say we love Him? And how does God want us to love others? But all of them flow out of and are governed by this first command. This first command that we're going to see that we should have no other gods before us. Or before, before the one true God. Now, now, here's the deal. If you haven't been with us these last two weeks, we, we've kind of been doing some, some plow work. It's kind of like we've, we've looked at the Ten Commandments and we've said, are these valuable today? Because sometimes today, even among Christians, we look at them and say, oh, those are kind of antiquated, aren't they? Aren't the Ten Commandments, those are Old Testament. We've got Jesus, so we, we don't really need these, do we? And so what we've done, in, in a kind of real sense, we've, we've taken a shovel out into the backyard and we've dug up these commandments, we've pulled them out, we've rinsed them off, and we've asked the question, what, what do these do for us today? And, and I, I want to kind of make sure we're on the same page because we've said these commandments, they do two key things for us. And we've got to keep these in mind as we, as we look at what the commandments are. The first thing is the law of God, the commandments of God, they point you... To the gospel. I mean, when you read these commandments, none of us read them, and we read one, we say, "Check, got it covered." We read the next one, okay, yep, I do it. Oh yeah, all of them, all t- ten out of ten. I am perfect, perfectly obedient to all ten of those. I mean, is there anyone in this room that would be brave enough to raise their hand and say, "That's me"? No. You know what they do is when we read them, we say, "Oh no, oh oh, I- I'm in trouble." These commandments, they make us realize that that we do not perfectly obey, and so we need help. They point us to Jesus. We'll return to that in a moment. But the other thing they do, we looked at this last week, the Ten Commandments, the law of God, it leads us in love. It's God's way of saying, here's who I am, and here's how you can show me that you love me, and here's how you can show others that you love others. And so today, as we dig into this first commandment, the first commandment, law of God, what we're going to see is that that God here, he shows himself to you so that you can show him love. God, when the first commandment, he shows himself to you so that you can show him love. I mean, what does it actually look like to love God? And, And how do you know? How do you know in your life you have no other gods before the one true God? How do you know that you know the one true God. That's what we're going to wrestle with today. And so we're going to do this by jumping right in. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, let's begin, if we're going to show God we love him, let's begin with the very beginning. We need to know God. And so you need to know the one true God. And you need to know him based on what he says about himself, not what you would make up about him. Look at Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. It says, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, here's what God does. Basically, God has, has led his people out of slavery through the Red Sea into the wilderness to Mount Sinai, and now he's, he's showing them who he is before he even gives his law. Before he even says, here's how you should live, he says, let me remind you of who I am. And he says a few things that are really insightful. The first thing he says, he says that God is the Lord. He says, I am the Lord. The word here in the Hebrew scripture is the word Yahweh. Just, this is God's name for himself when, when Moses, is, he encounters this burning bush and he realizes he's talking to God Almighty and he says, who are you? What is your name? And God says, my name is, and it's almost confusing, my name is I am that I am. Oh, wait, What? I, I am that I, I am? What, what does this mean? But God's name, Yahweh, it's His way of actually saying, I am the one who has always existed. I am the eternal one who has no beginning and has no end. He's saying, my very existence is the root of everything else that has come into existence. I am the supreme, eternal, pre-existent God. I am Yahweh. I'm the Lord. He says, this is, this is who I am. And, and in a sense, he says, there are none other. In fact, he, he doubles down. He says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. And then he says, I am the Lord your God. See, see, not only is God the Lord, but it, it almost seems simplistic to say it, but, but listen: God is God. God is God. The term for God here. It's actually the the generic plural form of the word God. And God uses this intentionally to identify himself because, because in his relationship with the people of Israel, God has just finished doing something amazing. He has just finished completely humiliating all of the gods of Egypt. I mean, we're in Exodus chapter 20, but if you back up to when the people of God, the Israelites, when they're enslaved in Egypt, God sends Moses, and then with Moses, God sends plague after plague after plague. And we read those with 21st century American eyes, and we say, man, these are, these are terrible to experience. I wouldn't want to experience it. But do you realize these plagues, they are actually direct attacks on all of the pagan Egyptian gods that existed in that day? I mean, just think about a few of these with me. God has shown that he is triumphant over the God Hopi. The god Hopi is the god of fertility, the god of of, of not just fertility, but of of flood and rain, really the god of water. And so when God has Moses turn the Nile River to blood, he's actually stepping into the ring with the Egyptian god Hopi, and he's saying, let's go one-on-one. I'm going to turn all of your water into blood. Let's see if you can do anything about it. And God knocks out this other god. He, he completely destroys it. There's nothing this pagan god can do. You, you take another one of the plague. God goes toe-to-toe with the, the goddess Heket. The goddess Heket is the goddess of blessedness and abundance. If you were to look at the Egyptian pictures of this, you would see the goddess, and she's got a head that's the head of a frog. <laughs> Maybe not what we picture for a goddess. But, but it's the picture of abundance. Because in the, in the rainy season when the river would swell and the frogs, they would multiply. And it was a sign of, of, of prosperity. It was a sign of abundance. God goes toe-to-toe with the, with the Egyptian God of blessing. You know what he does? He turns the Egyptian blessing into a curse. Instead of having extra frogs as a symbol of blessing, he sends more frogs than they can handle. He curses them. He turns their blessing into a curse. He embarrasses the Egyptian god, and he demonstrates that this god doesn't compare to him at all. Take the, the, another uh, one of the plagues. When God sends the gnats, these gnats, they come and they, they infest the land of Egypt and, and the magicians of Egypt, these, these sorcerers and wizards, these workers of the dark arts that are really in touch with, with evil, that they, they say we can do the exact same thing. They try to dismiss this plague as a parlor trick, thinking they can copy it, yet they can't. Which shows that even the magicians don't stand a chance against the one true God. God proves that he's God over nature. One of the next plagues is, is when God sends these swarms of flies. I mean, this is just. It's, it's gross. These flies come and they they infest the land, but you know what they do? They only infest the Egyptians. The Israelites are left untouched. And, and why? But God is just demonstrating with. with just abundant clarity. I am the God over all nature. I can command forms to infect you and not my people, really just to demonstrate that the Egyptian ways of worship and their pagan gods, they can't even go one round with God Almighty. The last example would be when God sends this, this plague of boils that infect the skin of the Egyptian. I mean, this is... Uh, not the most pleasant image at 11.30 on a Sunday morning. And yet the pagan gods of medicine, the physician gods of Imanhotep and Shekmet, they do nothing to stop it. We could go on and on. We could talk about their livestock being cursed and how that's a direct attack against the, their god of, of of Apis. But the point is what? The point is that, that God is... The God who rules and reigns over all other gods. See, God, as he's about to give the very first of his commands, God's making it really clear that his identity, he is the Lord Yahweh. He is their God, a relationship with them, and he rules and reigns over all the other gods. But but that's not all. He says, I'm the Lord, your God, and then he describes himself as their savior. He says, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery? Now think think about this. This nation has been held in bondage. They've been in slavery that was miserable. It, it, was, it was a slavery that was full of torment. Their taskmasters were not generous, graceful, kind, but instead their taskmasters were they were hard. And they drive them without mercy. They, They would beat them and take away their materials and make their work even more difficult and yet demand even more. And God says, I am the one who delivered you. I saved you out of this bondage. I rescued you. You see, before God says the words of the very first command, you want to know what he's really saying to the people of Israel? He said, I want you to know me as your one true God. I I want you to know me for who I am. I want you to see my power. I want you to see my love and my mercy and my grace. I want you to see how much I care about you. I am the one who has brought you out of the land of Egypt. But you fast forward to today, and I don't think there are any of us in this room that have been rescued from slavery in Egypt. I mean, I'd be surprised if many of us in this room know an Egyptian, let alone have been to Egypt. I mean, we can read this and we say, okay, well, okay, God rescued them from slavery in Egypt. What what does this mean for me today? <clears throat> Well, in the same way that God reveals himself to the people of Israel as he rescues them from slavery to Egypt, I want us to see today in the New Testament that that God has done the same thing. He has revealed himself to us as he rescues us from our slavery to sin. Look at John chapter 14. We're going to go back and forth between Exodus 20 and John 14 today. I want us to look at what Jesus does in a very similar fashion. When he reveals himself, he describes who he is. Here's what he says. We see that Jesus, he is the way to know God. John 14, verses 6 and 7, it says, And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known the Father also. From now on, you do know him. And you have seen him. And Jesus here, he's saying, you, you can now know the Father, you can now see the Father when you know me. And when you see me. See, this is the Jesus who, uh, just a few chapters before, in, in John chapter 8, reminds us that our sin, when we're in our sin, it's just like being Israel enslaved to Egypt. John 8, 34, Jesus says, Truly, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You realize without Jesus Christ, whether, whether you're conscious of it or not, whether you're aware of this reality or not, without Jesus Christ, you are you're enslaved. You're enslaved to your sin. The scripture talks about it in other ways, that you're enslaved to the world, the system of the world. You're enslaved to your your flesh and your desires that draw you to do what's wrong. You're actually even considered a slave to Satan himself. Yet Jesus, he says, I am the way. The way out of slavery and the way to know God. You see, God, he has gone through incredible effort to show who he is to the people of Israel. But in the same way God has gone through incredible effort for you. To show you who he is in Jesus Christ. See you, you need to know the one true God. And the only way to know the father the one true God is through Jesus. But, but saying okay, I, okay yeah yeah I, one true God I got it. I, I know there is one God. You're actually supposed to go deeper. If you want to love God, you don't just know Him. If you want to love Him, you need to believe in the one true God. You need to believe that He is the one true God, that He's the one and only God. Let me show you what I mean. Back to Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2, and then the first part of verse 3. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and here we go. You shall have no other gods when you read this with your children, usually their hand goes up. You say, wait, 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 does that mean there are other gods? Are, are there other gods? H- how do you answer that question? It's kind of a hard question because the answer, depending on how you look at it, is yes. There are other gods. You say, whoa, whoa I thought we were believed there was only one true God. Yeah, we do. So the answer is also no. It's yes and no. Let me show you what I mean. See, there are actually no other real gods in light of thinking about God has no equal. 1 Corinthians 8 talks about this when it's talking about food, sacrificed to idols, and if there really is such thing as an idol, and if that food is really, is it going to be eaten by like an idol or something like that? Here's what it says. It says, therefore, verses 8 through 6, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Verse 5, For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Here's what it's saying. There are spiritual powers and there are forces of good and of evil, but none of them actually are equal when it comes to being God. See, God as God is the only one who is all-powerful. God as God is the only one who is all-present, and God as God is the only one who is all-knowing. All of these other, it says, so-called gods, they have power, but it's not equal to God's. They, they have knowledge, but it's not equal to God's. They even exist in time and space, but not ever-present as God is. See, there is only one real, true God. And so then the question is, how are we to think about God's? How are we to think about spiritual forces that exist but are not equivalent? Well, we're to realize that there are rebellious spiritual beings and forces that are at war with God and at war with the things of God. I put it this way, there are real forces of evil and these forces of evil, they deceive. They deceive. See, most of the time, a spiritual force or a force of evil doesn't come right out and say, oh, I'm evil and I want you to do this. No, it comes in the most deceptive, manipulative way that it possibly can this is true of false teachers it's true of satan himself second corinthians eleven fourteen says and no wonder for even satan disguises himself as an angel of light in a few moments we're going to see a passage that calls satan the god of the world here's the point If if Satan wants to attack you, he's not going to come with a pitchfork and a slimy red tail and some horns looking like all of the cartoon pictures that you have in your mind saying, let me tempt you to do something evil. No, he's going to come to you looking like the most pleasant, beautiful angel of light you can ever imagine. He's going to come to you with the sweetest of temptations. He's going to come to you with the most alluring of evils, but it's going to be coated with candy, and it's going to draw you in. See, most of us, we err in one or two directions when it comes to thinking about these spiritual forces. Some of us want to just put our head in the sand, oh, act like there's no real spiritual realm, and there's no real evil, and and we just, you know, happy-go-lucky, head in the cloud, act like there's no issue whatsoever. That would be a mistake. The scripture speaks too clearly about this reality, but some of us, what do we do? we imagine there is a demon behind every corner. We act like everything that goes wrong in our life is spiritual warfare. Man, I stubbed my toe this morning, get out of bed. Satan really got one on me there, right? Everything is this matter of spiritual and demonic. No, no, no. What is our real position here? How do we navigate and not fall into one of the two extremes, one of the two gutters? You know what we do? What we do is we believe and the one true God. We keep our attention on the one true God. You see, most of us listen, I, I, I know some, I know most of you decently. Some of you, maybe I'm still getting to know, but most of us, we don't go home from a Sunday worship service, go open up our cabinet, pull out an idol and go set it on our kitchen table and then pray to us. I mean, any of you guys, is that your plan this afternoon? Most of us, we don't go home from work every night and fall down on our face in front of a pagan god and say some mantra over and over again. Uh, those people do exist, but I'm guessing if you're here right now or watching online, that, that's probably not you. And so what does what this spiritual warfare really look like? How does it really land in our lives today? Well, well for us, it's different. For us, there are desires there are desires in our hearts, and these desires, they become gods in our hearts. And these desires begin to lead us astray. 1 Corinthians 12, 2 says, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray by mute idols. These idols can't even speak. They can't even do anything. It says, however you were led. Let me, let me ask you, how are you led? What are the desires of your heart? that want to have you bow down to them, that want to compete, not like the Egyptian pagan gods, but like 21st century everyday ordinary desires that try to grow and become gods in your own heart. The late theologian J.I. Packer, he identifies three of them that are worth considering. He, he says the three of them that most of us are led astray after our sex and shekels in our stomachs. Let's just pick that apart for a moment. When he talks about sex, he's talking about the obvious lure of of sexual temptation, any kind of sexual pleasure pleasure that exists outside of the the marriage covenant between a husband and a wife, whether it's the flirtatious comments at work or, or the late night visiting of a website. Whether it's outright infidelity or adultery, whatever it might look like, but it's saying, oftentimes this becomes that desire that, that lures us and grows and becomes our own our own God. He also talks about shekels. What's shekels? What's that? It's a, an older term for the idea is money. It's, it's the idea of steady, instead of having God Almighty, we have the Almighty dollar. It's instead of in God we trust, it's in green we trust. Where we look to make a little bit more. And our attention is on on the bottom line and our four oh one K and what we can buy with it and what we can do with it. And it's always about getting a little bit more and it's never about being a little bit more generous. It's how, we wouldn't use the word greed, but it really is an expression of greed where I can get my hands around as much stuff that it's going to please me, and usually it has to do with my wealth. The last S he uses is the S that is our stomach. Our stomach. What can you consume? Now, this isn't just outright gluttony in terms of eating too much, but this is a form of gluttony that you eat the best all the time, and it's always about what pleases you and what you eat and what you drink and what you can consume. I would add a few more S's to this. How about status? How many of us care more about what the people in our life think about us than about what God Almighty about us. What about, I'll just call it our shows. I think the modern idol is called uh, Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime, because what do we do? We, we go home and, and we, every night we're watching the next episode of a show, and then we binge a show, and then we start asking our friends for something else to watch, and we've watched all the things we can get, and some of us get to the spot where we don't even watch a show at night, we just flip through all the things we could watch, trying to decide what is happening here but we're bowing down to our idol of entertainment some of us it's not television shows it's sports we got to catch the game we got to go to the game we we got to we got to know every stat about every player and we know these things so well and yet we ask when's the last time you memorized a word from the lord and <laughs> it's been ages Or maybe it's not watching the shows. Maybe our family is so ingrained in in the sports that our kids play that, that we regularly miss all of the opportunities to disciple and engage with the church family because all of our life is spent pursuing these activities. Last night after service, someone watching online, they said, Mike, I want to add one more S. What about safety? How many of us are so... Deathly afraid, living in this COVID era. How many of us are so afraid that we're not living? And not only are we not living, we're not worshiping. We're not serving. We're we're for the most part hunkered down, doing life our way, protecting our safety. Are any of these bad? I'd argue most of them are a gift, actually. But when the desire becomes our God, then we no longer have one true God. The question then is, okay, how do we believe in the one true God in a way that doesn't have us believing in all these other gods? And, and I'll give you a hint, it's, it's the church answer. It's Jesus. Jesus because in the same way that John 14 where Jesus says I am the way the way to know God we actually look at it and we say the next thing that he says is I am the truth I am the truth not a truth not one of many truths on a bookshelf, and you can come and you can choose your own adventure and you can pick the truth that you want. He says, I am the truth, as in the greatest, most important, and most urgent truth that you desperately need to believe. When we talk about Jesus being the truth, oftentimes we use the word gospel. What is the truth of Jesus being? The gospel truth. One time I actually had someone, a non-believer, trying to convince me they weren't lying. They said, Mike, that's the gospel truth. And I said, that's not the gospel truth. What is the gospel truth? Here's the gospel truth. Here's the truth that Jesus is. The gospel truth is that Jesus did what you have not done. Listen to this. He perfectly obeyed all ten commandments. I mean, he, he didn't do 9 out of 10. He did 10 out of 10. And it's not like he did 10 out of 10 on Sundays, but then Mondays through Saturdays, he kind of did, you know, 8 out of 10. No, the entirety of his 33 years on life, he perfectly obeyed to full completion all of the commandments without one violation, without one time violation failing without one error without one sin jesus he perfectly obeyed the commands and not only that in his perfection this is amazing you know what he does he comes to you and to me and he looks at you in your sin and me in my sin and he says listen what i'm gonna do i'm gonna give you the credit for my perfect life And I'm going to take the consequence for your sinful life. He trades with us. He trades with us, and so when He climbs upon that cross, and He bleeds and He dies, He pays the price in full for all of your sin and for all of my sin, washes away the guilt, cleans away all the shame, and then gifts you and I with perfect standing with the Father so that when you believe that Jesus died, was buried, and by the power of God resurrected, when you trust and believe that... God now looks at you as if you have perfectly obeyed all his commands. Jesus says, I am the truth. This is, this is the greatest of all truths. And the reality is, this truth is the dividing line throughout all of humanity. The reality is, spiritually, you are either blind or you believe this truth. It's one or the other. In fact, the scripture says this, speaking of those who don't believe, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4, speaking of those who do not believe the gospel truth, it says, in their case, the God of this world, speaking about Satan, This evil force, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Why? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You have seen God, and you know God, because you have seen Christ, and you know Christ. I love the way this puts it. It talks about the glory of Christ, That word glory is an amazing word. It means weight. It means substance. It it means that it's of of grand importance. The idea here is when you trust Christ, Christ becomes weighty in your life. When you trust Christ, Christ becomes substantial in your life. When you trust Christ, Christ becomes really your, your goal, your vision, your hope He grows to become the all-important truth in your life. It it makes me scratch my head sometimes when we talk to believers. Those who say, oh yeah, I trust Christ. And yet they, they see him as light. They don't see him as substantial, but as something on the periphery. You see, because we're either blind or we believe, the the one who blinds us, the one who deceives us, one of his greatest deceptions is to get you to hold on to a Christless Christianity. Where you say things like, you know what, I'm a pretty good person. At least I'm better than my neighbor. And you know what? I, I go to church and I I like going to church and you know some of the songs are good and you know it's it's, it's kind of a, a fun place to go sometimes and you know oh you, you know I'm busy most of the time so I, you know it's it's kind of only marginally on my radar and for the most part I, I only really go when I want to kind of that that spiritual boost and Christ weighs about half an ounce and you're out captivated. with with who he is. You're not captivated with with what he's done. You're not captivated with the great love that he loves you, that he was willing to die to pay the price for all of your sins and that he gives you this free life, this great and beautiful gift. Uh, Why do I say this? Uh, Hopefully it's not to, to give a false sense of guilt to anyone. That's never the goal. But what if you're sitting here today and you like Christ but you don't trust Christ? What if you're sitting here today and you actually have have leaned into this Christless Christianity where Jesus has no substance and Jesus has no weight? If that's you in this moment, maybe you're sensing the weight of Christ. Maybe this is the moment where you you stop playing this Christianity game and you you gaze upon the beauty and the glory of Christ who is the truth. See, as we look at the first commandment, you need to know. You need to know the one true God, but you also need to believe. You need to believe the one true God and you know the one true God through Christ because He is the way. You believe the one true God through Christ because He is the truth. But as we continue and we finally get to the last two words of verse 3, Exodus 20, we see that you you need to honor the one true God. And the Lord God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This phrase before me in Hebrew is it's a bit of a tricky phrase. There's all sorts of different uh, approaches to, to how to actually translate it. Some people will say it means next to me, have no other gods next to me, or have no other gods except for me. Have no other gods over me or to my disadvantage. Have no other gods in front of me or opposite of me. But the, the most, uh, I guess, the, the most accessible way to understand this phrase is to have no other gods, almost literally speaking, before my face. Before my face. It's actually the imagery of of ancient days in a a nomadic tribe would have all of their tents, and they would go and they would set up their tents wherever they were camping for whatever season they were going to be. And in the the very center, let's say they had hundreds and maybe thousands of tents. They'd set all of them up, but in the very center of camp, what would you find? You would find the tent of the king, the, the warrior king specifically, and his, his tent would be in the very center because they would all see that they are in his presence. This is exactly what Israel was experiencing out in the wilderness. After the Ten Commandments are given, God gives them the, the tabernacle and it explains how the tabernacle, God's presence among them works. He's basically saying here that I am now your king and you should have no other Loyalty no other allegiance and no other affection in my presence. It'd be like uh, standing in front of a king and and having someone else walk into the room and having your king give you a command and then simultaneously the other king says something differently and you obey this other king. What, What treason, what disloyalty. What a lack of love. The reality is this, this phrase, before my face, it reminds us that the entirety of your life is lived before the face of God. See, the face of God, it's, it's a, 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 a literal term uh, uh, that, that describes not God actually having a face, but God's, God's vision toward all things. It's not like God can turn his back and you can get away with you know, doing something when his back's turned. No, the entirety of your life is lived before the face of God. Hebrews 4.13 reminds us of this. It says, it says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is it says that you... You are naked and exposed before God. You know, sometimes in public speaking classes or, or like even preaching classes, sometimes they'll tell you, you know, uh, imagine, imagine if you're nervous, just imagine the audience is in their underwear, right? I'll tell you what, I never give that advice. That sounds like the most terrifying advice possible, right? That's the last thing I want to imagine when I'm talking to a group of people. But this says that all of us before God Almighty the words it uses it says we are all naked and exposed. But it's not talking about your clothing. It's talking about your soul. It's talking about every single thought and intention you can't hide any of it from God. The entirety of your life is lived in full view right before His face of God Almighty. This means, this means the entirety of your life is meant to honor God, to honor God as God. You know what we're really good at, especially I think the guys, maybe even more so, we're really good at having my work life and then my family life, and then my church life, and then my leisure life, and then my hobby life. And you know, it's, it's like they're not supposed to touch at all, right? You got to keep them all in their own compartment. Every once in a while, I see someone at church, and someone new will show up that someone already goes here, they work with, and it's like they, they go pale, like, oh no, my, my, my life is blending. Like, this person, they're not supposed to be here. That's, they're part of my work life, not, not my church life. Like, we we kind of act like life is meant to be kept on all these different categories. But guess what? God, he reigns and rules over all of them. All of them overlap when it comes to the entirety of your life is a life that is to honor God as God. So so how do you live a whole life honoring God? How do you do it? What does it look like? Well, we've looked at how you know God through Jesus. He's the way. We've looked at how you trust God through Jesus. He's the truth. So it should be no surprise that how do you live a life that honors God but through Jesus? Jesus. See, Jesus is the life that honors God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I want to give you a a grid. I want to give you a grid to think through what does it look like in Christ, not on your own, not because you're good enough, but because Christ has died and rose again. I want you to give you just a brief grid to think about are you living a life that honors God As God. See, a life in Christ, first of all, is a life of worship. A life of worship is a life that is more than just singing a song. A life of worship is when you seek after God, when you want to know Him by any means necessary, where you are unwilling to allow anything to get in your way to know the one true God. Is your highest goal in life to worship God in everything you do? See, a life in Christ is a life of worship. A life in Christ is also a life of trust. This means that that you trust Christ, you trust God, more than you trust, I don't know, uh, politics and political leaders. But it's deeper than that. It's more than you trust your savings account. It's more than you trust your physical strength or your personality. It's more than you trust your own intellect to figure out things on your own. It's, it's a life that trusts. So the question then is, is your trust built upon anything other than the Lord your God? Do you trust him to take care of your safety? Do you trust him to take care of your security? Do you trust him to satisfy you? A life in Christ is a life of worship and of trust. It's also a life of dependence. A life of dependence is a life of, of prayer. You you know what the most regular prayer out of my lips recently is? Maybe the entirety of 2020 was this just, just simple prayer God, help. Help. God, I, I depend on you. God, I. Before I preach, God, help. I, I can't do this on my own. Before you make every decision, is it, God, help. God, help me to be a good dad. Help me to be a good husband. Help me to be a good friend. Help me to, to make wise de- decisions. God, help. Let me, let me ask you, where do you look for help? Is your first look for help Google? <laughs> is your first look for help a friend's advice? Or is your first the first place you go for help? God, here I am again. Help. It's a life of dependence. It's also a life of gratitude. Maybe the second best prayer you can pray is, God, thank you. Thank you for the blessing. Thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you for providing. What what about this? Thank you for the difficulties. Thank you for the pain that means that I have to lean on you more. Thank you for the heartache that shows me that my hope was in something else besides the one true God. It's a life of gratitude. Finally, finally, it's a life of delight. It's a life of delight. Stephen, in the call to worship, he read from Psalm 119. One of the verses today was verse 24. It says, Your testimonies are my delight. Let me just ask you, is God, is He a duty? Something you have to do? Or is He a delight to you? That's one of the ways to know if you follow the one true God. Is is worshiping God, is it a chore? I gotta go to church. Or, Or is it a crown? It's the best part of my week. Is serving Christ... Is it a task? Okay, i got to go do this thing for Jesus again. Or is it your treasure? I get to serve the one true God who saved me from slavery of my sin. So I want you to see all of today, all of today, Exodus 20 and John 14, all of today is God showing you himself so that you can show him love. Is he your one true God? Do you have other gods that stand before Him? Do you have gods in your life that you need to turn away from and repent from following and and cast your eyes completely upon Jesus? Heavenly Father, God, we thank You that You show us how to love You. You show us that you You are our Lord, You are our God, You are our Savior, Thank you so much that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you that in you, we have what we need more than anything else. And thank you for moments like this where we realize that maybe, maybe we've been looking away from you to other gods. Heavenly Father, today I pray that in your kindness and in your grace and in your mercy, you would set our hearts upon you again. You would help us to be honest inside of our own souls about the things that we've been loving more than loving you. God, I pray that as we turn away from the things of this world and we turn toward you, you would give us that incredible sense of freedom, of joy, of hope. I pray that we would turn toward Jesus and see him for what he's worth in his glory and he would become the weightiest truth of our lives, that in that we would be compelled to love you because of everything you've shown us about yourself. And we pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen.